It's my favorite part of every superhero movie. It's the origin story, and everybody has one. Welcome to Pinecone Turkey's The Origin Story Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Henry Harris, and it's my privilege to interview superheroes from all walks of life to find out how they got from A to B, to see where they might be going next, and how we all can learn from their journey. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Our superhero today is Justin Anderson. Justin is a professional theater director based in Atlanta, Georgia. He has credits throughout the Southeast and in Europe. He's currently serving as Associate Artistic Director of Aurora Theater in Lawrenceville, Georgia, a professional equity theater and the fastest growing theater in the state. And I kind of dig what they're doing out there, not just from the quality of work, which is outstanding, but also with the community building they are doing. And uh, it's really a theater on the rise. And uh, we talk a lot about that in part two, uh, mainly. Uh, Justin has also received 10 Susie, Susie Bass Award nominations, and that is the award for professional theater in Atlanta, Georgia. And he has two wins for Best Direction for Les Miserables and the Bridges of Madison County. Uh, he has a current show up, Newsies, uh, a Disney musical. And it's a co-production between Aurora and Lyric Theater. And so it spent several weeks at Aurora and then travels to Lyric Theater. And it's still, it is still running. So if you hear this and are curious about his work, you can actually go see it. If you're in the Atlanta area at Lyric Theater, and I link to uh, the theater in the show notes, so you can click on that and go buy some tickets and go check out his work. Uh, Justin is a pretty amazing person. Uh, besides being a great director, uh, and you can see why he is when you listen to him uh, talk about his process, uh, hear about his upbringing. You can tell the communication is something he is great at. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be directed by him twice, and I'll tell you that uh, he's great. He's great in the room as an actor to work with and work off of. And uh, he is uh, he's just got all the skills you want. Um, this is a two-parter. We go kind of in the weeds in depth on what got him into theater. Uh, we talked about uh, his experiences at undergrad and at uh, grad school and then why he decided to leave grad school. So if uh, anybody here is interested or has a friend who is interested in the theater community or acting, considering going to grad school, I would definitely listen to both parts of this. Uh, part one is mainly uh, biographical in that we get him up to going to New Jersey for grad school. And then uh, part two, we come back to Georgia and we see kind of his career rise uh, and we, we follow that journey. And it's just, uh, he's just a really, really impressive person. It's very insightful. Uh, I think, uh, very self-aware person. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy as much as I did without further ado, Justin Anderson. And we are live. I'm here with Justin Anderson. Thanks for being on the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, you have a play that is running right now. That is correct. That you worked on a musical. Correct. Newsies. And which where is, is that? Uh, running at Aurora Theater through September 2nd. And it is a co-production with Atlanta Lyric Theater. And so it will transfer down to the Jenny T. Anderson uh, Civic Center in Marietta from October 19th through November 4th. Okay, so will you, uh, same cast? Same cast, yeah, very excited. Will you go back into rehearsals? We will have a handful of pickups, um, not quite a full week prior to, uh, but a couple of days just depending on... Um, what we assess the needs to be in terms of mostly brushing up choreography, 
but also there are a few um, spatial considerations that we need to be aware of. Um, at the Jenny T. Anderson, we actually have the the gift of having a little bit of a deeper space. So there will be a slight adjustment for some of these portals. Um, actually, it's 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 going to make what we do tremendously easier. So I don't think the adjustment period is going to take that long to get used to. Okay, and the set the set was built at Aurora. Do it was built at Aurora. Shop, or how does that work? Uh, so we have um, we have an external shop that uh, is uh, rented by our organization, but it's for our productions. And so um, our set designer uh, Shannon Robert, who is the head of the scenic department at Clemson University, and has designed with us. Oh gosh, now this is her fourth opening show with us. Um, uh, typically, the summer musical, and. She is very used to this idea of co-productions and making sure that the uh, design is going to be aesthetically pleasing and full and correct within multiple spaces. So this was no different. The last couple of years we had co-produced with Theatrical Outfit, and this year we were uh, calibrating our partnerships and shifting gears a little bit to uh, um, uh, Atlanta Lyric Theater. Uh, This seemed like the right property to join forces with them. Uh, regarding so that's what we did and she scoped out both spaces and it's really interesting if you walk backstage and you look at all of the areas where the audience can't see you will find these incredible labels of uh, almost like identifying puzzle pieces so when they strike the set from our space put it into storage for four and a half five weeks and then cart it down to Marietta it should Knock on wood. Uh, go together pretty seamlessly because they've done a lot of prep work in terms of uh, making sure that all of the pieces are labeled. So maybe it's uh, in a way it's it's like the IKEA setup, right? right. <laughs> we'll deliver it, and as long as you follow the instructions, it should come together just fine. I found that the best seventy five dollars I've ever spent was having somebody come help me <laughs> put together my IKEA stuff. Um, so how did you how did you why, how did you pick Atlanta Lyric as a partner for this particular project or who, whose idea was it? How did well, it I think um, so. Uh, it it was organizational within uh, our creative team, which comprises of myself, Anthony Rodriguez, who's our producing artistic director, and Carol Pence, who is our associate producer, and our new education director, Greta Zanstra. Um, uh, and so we typically um, will bounce around creative ideas internally before we announce them or uh, collaborate with the rest of the staff in terms of getting ideas and sort of bouncing off uh, logistics and things of that nature. And because um, Mary Nye Bennett is now, this is her first full season as the, uh, the first season rather that she um, programmed as the artistic director of Atlanta Lyric Theater, we were just very... Um, uh, conscious about wanting to empower her position and uh, support the work that she's doing with uh, musical theater in particular in Cobb County, because we share a lot of similar values, I think, uh, when it comes to mission and sensibility uh, and the way that we approach musical theater in particular. So, well, uh, let me interrupt you. Yeah. So, what would those be? Like, what are Oh, some gosh. Um, so, what we intend to do typically with uh, our musicals, particularly our, our opening show, which is why this ended up being a lovely partnership with uh, the Lyric. Let me, let me backtrack just a little bit and see if I can dovetail into to that. So, I'm going to sure. rabbit trail for a second. Um, because we are the only professional game in Gwinnett County, there is a sense of in the best way possible attempting to be 
everything for everyone. And I know when you when you say that, or maybe when you hear that, you think, well, that's impossible, and that it, does that not push you towards generality, this, that, or the other? I understand, and I hear those questions, but in actuality, I think the opposite is true for us, because um, we see ourselves as uh, sort of the cultural heartbeat of the county. It's incumbent upon us. I think it's actually our charge to try to offer as much programming for as many different individuals as possible. We're also situated in uh, the most diverse county in the Southeast, which is an incredible charge for us to not only curate, but to uh, populate our programming with as many different people as possible. So it's a reflection of our immediate community and ideally serving as um, a reflection of and maybe a mirror to the rest of the metro Atlanta area. In Gwinnett, uh, we have already uh, surpassed the census projections that by 2040, the entire country is going to be majority minority. We've already done it. So if you want to see what the rest of the country is going to look like in, what, 20 plus years, come see us because we're there. Right. And it's a beautiful thing to embrace. Um, so when you hear people talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion, it's not just a thing. It's not just an idea. We're living it and we embrace it and it's, it's part of our DNA. It's not something that we feel like we have to check off or this, that, or the other. Um, so that's one scope of, of, of what feeds into our mission. And then when it comes to programming in general, uh, the, really the thread of, of our mission specifically at Aurora is to create a new generation of theater goers. Now, what that means is it's not just sort of gearing work towards youngsters or, uh, you know, high schoolers, whatever, merging um, uh, college students, although that is super important to us in terms of cultivating um, that particular generation. Uh, but there are plenty of people who are within Gwinnett or come from other places to our theater who are adults who have never been to a live performance before or just have never built some consistent pattern of um, attending a live theatrical event before. So in a way, it's almost like creating a theater for non-theater people in a way. I mean, certainly we have those who are insiders. We have those who are intrinsic patrons. Uh, but I think we do have a, a, a large swath of our patron base that um, until they started attending our shows, they were not theater goers. And so we take that very seriously and, and as a huge honor. And, and one of the other aspects outside of the... Uh, diversity of our programming is we want to curate a season that's going to invite degrees of conversations. So when you look at our opening slot, which typically is a musical, um, we are looking at a means of inviting people. I like to think about it as inviting people onto your front porch. There's something very familiar. There's something very um, accessible about the work. There's something that um, uh, is inviting Um and on front porches, you, you typically aren't having super, super, super difficult conversations. There's something, again, that is uh, uh, a little, I don't want to say lower risk, but in terms of your investment as an audience member, uh, there's, an, there's an ease to the work. Now, the work itself doesn't have to be easy, and I think the work can actually pose some, uh, some curious questions and can actually have a lot of resonance, which, again, with Newsies, it ended up being, I think, the perfect piece to uh, catapult this next season as you're looking at supporting marginalized individuals, speaking truth to power. I can't think of a better time <laughs> to program something like that. And it's, it's, it's really wonderful because um, we've, we've hit these kinds of, I don't know, uh, re revelations um, in the last couple of seasons without ever having the immediate foresight of, oh, this is going to be 
super resonant without us saying, look at this play. See how it reflects in the contemporary situation today. It's nice but, when the society molds. Every, well, yeah, maybe, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's, sort, it's sort of wonderful and maybe a little disturbing. Right. But um, so throughout the rest of our, our, our season, the idea, I mean, I think of it like a house. Okay. So back to that idea of the front porch. If I'm having um, a warm sort of inviting first visit or uh, a place to familiarize someone with the kind of work or the people that we are, that's a front porch show. Now, the further I invite someone into my house, into the living room, into the kitchen, I think the deeper the conversations can go. And uh, you think about you know, your, own, your own home, your own uh, abode. Where do you often have sort of the meatiest kinds of conversations with people? Well, it's in the place that you probably spend the most time, which might be around your kitchen or your living room. And so if you track through our programming, uh, you sort of, with that metaphor in mind, um, I think you can sort of navigate the conversations that we're trying to curate and the invitation to come further into the house, if you so choose, if you're so willing. Um, and even if, even if it's not something that floats your boat, you don't have to stay. It's not gonna, we're not going to keep you in the kitchen the entire season. Um, you will have opportunities to navigate in and out of the structure of the house of curation that we've created for you. So are you doing this uh, just through the programming or what else do you do with your, I guess, customer relation or building up this sure. community thing to, to, without hitting the, you know, the, the nail on the head with you know, getting that message across? Well, um, through a variety of other uh, community engagements. So there are um, intersection points at the theater that um, might ask for an immediate response. There could be some lobby display with a question that we've posed that we would love a response to. Um, something that we have found to be one of our most effective tools of engagement, excuse me, is in our lobby right now. Um, it is, it's nothing more than a photo booth for Newsies that has a frame that says seize the day it has it has gotten a tremendous amount of traffic and this idea that people can just gather together and uh sort of stamp a moment in time with a sense of uh place and purpose and intentionality and sort of uh indicating that here i am and this is this is what i'm doing today this is what i'm investing my time in and that picture is sent to them either via email or text and they're posting it all over social media which is really really crazy and wonderful um that bizarrely enough has has become the thing that has just threaded um sort of visual connectivity to this particular piece uh and so you know in that regard we're not asking anyone a question we're just saying hey take a moment to um to just be here with us and uh to to seize the day that's what the frame says um so yeah it, 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 in a in a way while it's not that may not necessarily be creating a specific dialogue. What it's doing is I think it's inviting you to, um, to say that I, uh, I, I mean to be here, I want to be here, and there's something about this experience that uh, I'm looking forward to or anticipating or hoping to enjoy. Um, this show, too, bizarrely, uh, and maybe not bizarrely, uh, it is our second highest selling show outside of Mamma Mia, which was just a unicorn. Uh, which really sort of blew my mind. So it's it's beaten all of the records of Les Mis. It's beaten In the Heights. It's beaten uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. That's surprising. Which is very surprising to me. And of course, now I loved the film in 92 when it came out. God bless Christian Bale. Um, <laughs> super earnest, not a great vocalist, but that's okay. Uh, but I didn't realize how much of, uh, not just sort of like a cult following that um, the piece continues to have, but the 
the introduction of a younger generation to it. So in that regard, we are really cultivating younger audiences, not just people who haven't attended the theater before. Um, but all of that to say, this idea of, it, it, again, with this being an, a show opener, a season opener rather, that feels like what I call a front porch production that's warm, accessible, inviting, come over and hang out with us. It's, uh, you know, we're part of your neighborhood. Um, there's familiarity, there's accessibility. I think that is something that uh, the lyric also latches onto and this idea of, of curating and also being um, often a, uh, uh, I don't want to say uh, a purveyor of, of American theater classics, but that is certainly a part of their, um, their MO. But they are creating an environment, again, that feels familiar um, and that feels uh, uh, particularly uh, accessible because of location and also price point. And this idea that you can create quality musical theater engagement outside of a touring venue like the Fox or the Cobb Energy Center or elsewhere that is just as impactful, maybe if not more so because of the intimacy of the space. And um, the production quality is not going to suffer or be less than or wanting from what you would see on a road show. So if you marry those two sensibilities together, uh, it, it just felt like the right partnership um, to to launch in with them. And who knows, we'll see if, if that continues in the future. I What I love about uh, these co-productions that we're engaged in is that, in a sense, uh, because of the sprawl of Atlanta, no one is cannibalizing anybody else's audience because you're still driving 20, 30 miles to get to whatever venue that you need to get to. That is so true. Mm -hmm. and, and it also is... Um, helping to trumpet the work a little bit more because what I often find, and, and I've been in Atlanta since 2003 and then a short little stint in Jersey and then came back um, is we, and I still think we have this problem in that um, often a show gets running and it's about week three or four that either you hear about it or it's a, Oh yeah, that thing I have to go see. And by the time you're prepared to see it, sometimes it's closed. Hey, this is so true. And so for us with these extended runs and these split runs with these co-productions, it provides additional opportunities for the public to see the work. And it's really helping to support and provide, uh, hopefully, a fair and livable wage for the artists. So when you, particularly those, um, uh, let's say you're an equity member and uh, you need to garner a certain number of weeks in order to claim or have access to your insurance to the union. Well, with our contract uh, with Newsies, you're getting, oh gosh, 11, 12 weeks at Aurora and then an additional four weeks at the Lyric. So you've already hit your 12 weeks for insurance, which is fantastic. So yeah, I, that's, that's a great thing. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm super uh, proud of the fact that we can help to provide that kind of access and stability and consistency uh, for certain artists. Yeah, without a doubt. I, I love what you guys are doing at Aurora. I love how you're owning where you are and embracing the entire community and i like the fact that you again generally you're right if you're trying to please everyone you're going to please no one right but i, I agree i think y'all do have a duty and responsibility for to represent the entire right. county and i love how y'all do it uh so how did theater get into your life oh gosh uh when did you, when did you start uh knowing it was something you you were enjoying well as a kid uh I grew up in the church, and uh, I was I where, was where part of town? okay. Where, so I was where? born in Detroit, okay, and I moved to Virginia, just south of Richmond, when I was five. So even though I claim my Midwestern roots, I'm really <laughs> raised in the South. Um, you probably can't tell from from the dialect because it's it's fairly neutral. Uh, 
but I I have loved my my time and sort of the the nurturing environment of being raised in the South. And uh, so I was part of the uh, a Southern Baptist church growing up in Virginia. Um, and I was doing these children's musicals with the children's choir, and I enjoyed them. Um, I was painfully shy when I was very young. I was uh, in, I, I can remember this very vividly, in first grade, I was in a production called Where in the World is Nanny Bird? <laughs> and I played Booker T. Worm. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, I was dressed in a like a green caterpillary wormy costume with these ginormous sunglasses, singing a song about how special I was. Uh, and I remember the first time that I had to perform it in front of anyone in the congregation other than the uh, the director and the music director. I I could barely get uh, the the lyrics out of my mouth. I was so shy doing a step touch the entire time. Oh my god! Uh, by the time performances rolled around for the public, it was fine. I totally embraced it. But uh, it was it was something that I grew into. I think um, it's. I come from a family who the majority of them are instrumentalists. They were in band or in you know some other aspect of of instrumental music. My grandfather. Uh, Harry Gossard, my mom's dad, uh, was a professional jazz musician. No way. Absolutely. And uh, he uh, was Canadian. He lived in the States, but never naturalized as a United States citizen. Um, and he played the circuit in um, the the Midwest, in um, Canada, in New York, uh, through World War II. And it's bizarre because the stories I would hear... When, when I was born and, uh, you know, began to develop a relationship with my grandfather, he was a very, very quiet man. And that whole idea of like still waters run deep, but would never, would never volunteer information to say, oh, this is, this is what I did in my life, or these are the accomplishments. Uh, but he played with some of the greats, uh, you know, came, came across uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Dizzy Gillespie. I mean, those, it's just, it's bizarre because... He never shared that voluntarily. That's amazing. And you would find out through the grapevine or other people in your family to say, has, has Grandpa Gossard told you this particular story? You're like, no. Uh, well, you should ask him. Okay. And you know, you would ask him and he would articulate this idea of, of what he had done. But to him, it was, just his, it was just his job. That's just what he did. There was no uh, preciousness about it. There was no sense of celebrity. And um, it, you know, in a way, even though he wasn't, he was never sort of in that um, star echelon, uh, the fact that he brushed shoulders with them and played in their bands or would, uh, you know, sort of be a, a cover for something, and, and just moving in a similar circle really just blows my mind. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. Uh, so um, so there, there certainly is an intrinsic love of music in my family, but not necessarily um, uh, someone delving into theater. Uh, so again, I, I, I dabbled in choir musicals throughout uh, my youth, and then when I graduated high school, I was uh, I was the salutatorian of my class. Oh wow! Elsie uh, Bird High School, a class of 1999, Go Skyhawks. Uh, so it was number two, is that right? Uh, number two, number okay. two, and I think it was something like maybe a less than a tenth of a point or something <laughs> yeah. that separated uh, no not bitterness, no hard, not at all. <laughs> so did you want, did you want well, number one? Did you uh, want not specifically. I, you know, I mean, maybe there was some internal tension of like, you right. cats, why couldn't I? Um, but it was very, very curious. I uh, So what, what ended up um, sort of evolving with me uh, 
was music. I, so whereas the rest of my family mostly were instrumentalists, um, I developed a voice. I, I sang. And uh, I don't get to do that much these days, but that was really sort of a, a major threat of my life, working through these um, these elementary choir productions and like middle school choir productions and being in choir in, in uh, middle school. Although, interestingly, I was only in chorus my freshman year of high school, and then I diverted to photography. I just had an interest in in photography. We had a dark room at the school, and I thought, well, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I did that, and it was just, I'd never had sort of a uh, uh, a propensity for it before, even sort of like an uh, articulated interest. But when I found out that that was available, I thought, of course, absolutely, why not? And I think part of it is because I, I just have an overall curiosity when it comes to learning and when it comes to not even just the arts, but to the world in general. And my hope is that I continue to be a student of life as as I get older. You know, I think a lot of uh, theater people or a lot of uh, storytellers just in general, whether film, TV, right. you know, writing, uh, that's one of the beautiful things about it. If you're playing this character or directing this play in this world, you get to dive into that world completely. Absolutely. And you get to satisfy all your curiosities. Absolutely. And you get to leave it alone and go do totally. it again and again and again. I mean, I know that's personally for yeah. me why I love yeah. all of this uh, storytelling mediums. It's curious because I was surrounded with individuals, maybe they were counselors or other teachers and not necessarily family but a lot of them were so curious about what like what are you doing justin you're super smart you've got this grade point average why are you you should take this extra like calculus ap calculus class or blah 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 i was like i just i'm not interested in that i'm interested in i don't know something that is going to help me connect to the human experience um and so i i was grateful to have that opportunity and that margin to not feel like I was so handcuffed to, okay, because I'm sort of identified as this, whatever, uh, uh, accelerated gifted student that I was just along this trek of, um, just pure STEM. Right. right. And that I had opportunities and was encouraged by some, if not all, some people just didn't understand say, absolutely. Like, go ahead and, and explore whatever interests that you want or have, because you may not have an opportunity to do it again. And in fact, the hope is that that's going to continue to inform everything else that uh, you're learning. It's, it's amazing that uh, everything can work in cooperation. We don't have to <laughs> silo or compartmentalize. Craziness. Yeah. And so then when I uh, decided um, uh, where I was going to school, I chose Campbell University in North Carolina. Now, how did you choose Campbell? I've not oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, so Cam, uh, Campbell um, became sort of an 11th hour uh, choice for me. Uh, I had friends who you know, had early admission to UVA, to William & Mary, a lot of the, the uh, primary schools, Virginia Tech, uh, in Virginia, and there was just nothing about those institutions that really spoke to me. Um, because then also I think it seemed expected as well. And, and I don't know, I, I don't think I was necessarily trying to buck a trend being some rebel or whatever, but, uh, I just felt like I needed or wanted rather something that would provide a little bit more of a nurturing space. And so I had a, uh, um, a friend who had graduated two years earlier who was attending Campbell and my, uh, senior English teacher was familiar with the school as well and just said, Hey, I, I know this seems sort of out of the blue and it's out of the state It's a private school. So I'm not even sure if it's even in your wheelhouse in terms of financial capabilities to, to attend, but give it a look and see if it might be something of interest. And 
So I researched the school, ended up applying, went for a visit, and it just felt like a really, really wonderful place. I initially, here's the crazy part. <laughs> so graduate is a salutatorian, right? Uh, with, again, probably with this expectation of going into something that probably would have connected to more of those skills. Uh, I ended up declaring um, vocal performance as my major initially. <laughs> And again, it was it, that, that transition from high school to college was was utterly bizarre because I knew I knew there was this this cloud of witnesses who, whether they had articulated or not, probably had a preconceived um, notion of of what my life was going to be or what I should be pursuing. Or and what what was that? I you know anything other than the arts. Okay. Um, and again, because I also I had I hadn't been singing in in school since my freshman year. Now, granted, I was still connected with some uh, um, some choral opportunities at church and things like that. And so, when when I told people that's what I was doing, they were like, "Oh, oh, <laughs> okay, um, great, awesome, good luck with that." Right, right. Uh, send us a card. Uh, so I, I, um, that was my, and and I think what I was anticipating was, um, dovetailing into some type of music education at some point, but I quickly understood once I got into that program that I, I did not have enough training as an instrumentalist before I started that, that program. I really should have had, I had taken a couple of years of piano, uh, in my really, it wasn't until my my high school career to assist my vocal training, um, but the the speed and the rigor with which this uh, curriculum was geared towards and and how fast it was going, I couldn't keep up. Was this was this school known for having good programs in this, or is that yeah, absolutely, okay, okay. absolutely, um, particularly as it relates to music education? Um, they were they were pretty well known, uh, not just in North Carolina, but sort of south in the southeastern region of context. part of the state? They're in, they're between Raleigh and Fayetteville, so on the east side of the state. Um, in the middle of sort of nowhere, it's a town called Bowie's Creek. Uh, when I was there, there was a flashing red stoplight and a post office, and that was it. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, now, you know, it's a 21st century small oh, sure. southern town, Starbucks and, and uh, oh gosh, you know, that's right, shops. like, Cable in every dorm room, and anyways, keyless small, entry. Small town version of the uh, PetSmart, right? And the Home Depot and the, you know, exactly, exactly. So, um, I, I uh, w- really within the first couple of, I don't even know if it's the first couple of weeks or the first week of school. I can't remember quite clearly now. This was in August of 1999. Um, uh, so I, I had met with my advisor, who was also the choral director, which I was a part of at Campbell, and literally within a couple of days of classes starting, um, found that they were produce- the theater was producing a production of The Sound of Music. I had not auditioned, I had not even thought about it, had not considered it, and Dr. Morrow, Dr. Philip Morrow, um, who uh, was music directing, also my choral director, uh, called me into his office after... Uh, choir one day and said, Hey, um, this is going on in the department that's in this building. I'm music directing. Uh, I know you could sing this role. Would you have any interest in participating? And I thought, I, I don't know. Okay. I mean, sure. Why not? 
So uh, he said, great, well, then you need to go down to the theater department and and talk to uh, Harold Hino, who was the director, and he probably was going to have you read a side or something like that. I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. So I go down and I meet with the department and I read and I sing a little bit of, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was 16 going on 17 or, or whatever for them. And so they offered me the role sort of on the spot and it was for Friedrich, one of the Von Trapp children, who's, I'm 14, I'm a boy. Uh, (laughs) Well, I do have very much a baby face, and maybe even more so back then in 1999. Uh, So that that was my first taste of a real, I would say, uh, sort of intentional, uh, again, not to diminish the things that I had been doing in church, but this was just a whole different ballgame. I didn't do theater in high school. You know what I mean? So I didn't really even have that bridge as a, oh, okay, well, I have some degree of preparation in terms of dealing with uh, published scripted work and things that have, uh, you know, are part of uh, the canon of, um, in this case, in American musical theater or whatever, you know. Uh, I just didn't really have that. Um, I mean, I certainly had exposure through singing songs uh, in the musical theater canon, but again, no real tactile experience being a part of a musical like this. Right. So uh, I do the show and that proverbial bug just bit. And I thought, gosh, this is curious. (laughs) This is interesting. And so I ended up in tandem sort of with some duality, remaining a music, uh, a vocal performance major and also auditioning and continuing to pursue these theatrical endeavors, but outside of the auspice of my major. That went on for that first semester. By the end of that first semester, going into the the spring semester of my freshman year, I had changed my major to, again, of all things, it wasn't theater. It's like I was too afraid to declare it, so I switched to mass communications. And uh, people were like, what's that? I said, I don't know. It uh, seems like a safe place to land because I'm not quite sure what I want to do, but it's I know it's not vocal performance because after having been in these classes and God bless uh, that they had the rigor that they did, but it just wasn't for me. And I just knew that I wasn't going to be um, effective in, uh, in, in a classroom setting as a music educator. Um, nice to figure that out quickly. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I tell people all the time, I, cause, because I also teach part-time at Kennesaw State University here in Georgia. Uh, and that is one thing I will tell our apprentices and also uh, I'm, I'm my students and also our apprentices at Aurora Theater in that it's not only important to figure out what you love, what brings you passion, what makes you happy. It's also important to understand what doesn't. And I think the sooner that you can figure that out, uh, the clearer your your trajectory can be. Not to say that it's going to be, you know, miles ahead. It might just be just enough, just enough light for the step you're on. Uh, but, um, yeah, so that was a moment for me of like, okay, I can put this, I can let this go and, and not even mourn for it and realize, like, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and so then I continued to be, I think I was in every main stage production that season with the theater department, not as a declared major, just as like a, someone who's guesting and ghosting from oh, another department. Hey, <laughs> they totally did, but it was a fairly small department. So in, they needed additional bodies, particularly guys, which always seems to be the case. Right. Right. Um, so, uh, by the end of that year, I made a, a, a full, switch and declared theaters my major and again it was already weird enough when i went to school in the first place and telling people about vocal performance even though particularly those in uh the uh, my sphere outside of school who knew i was like singing in choirs and things like that were okay with it and when i, when I told everybody i was studying theater they were like what what how you you didn't do any of this in high school you didn't pursue any of this sort of seriously 
So do you remember what that feeling was that made you want to come over? Yeah, I think it was... Was there there a moment where you're like, okay, this is it? I I don't know if I could distill it to, to just some moment of singularity, Michael, but there... There was something so compelling about exploring the humanity of, of what we were doing. And I know that sounds precious and sounds super trite, but it really was impactful. And I think this idea that you could, you could live in and embody something and craft something that communicated uh, some degree of, uh, of potency to someone out in the darkness in an audience and that they would hopefully leave different than they showed up, that there would be some moment of impact for them, I thought was just the most magical thing. Yeah, I love that. Uh, And I still believe that to this day. I still believe that um, that's, it's not only sort of the essence of what we do, but it's, it's sort of the calling and the, the noble duty of, of being a storyteller. And this idea that, and it's become a little bit more clear to me now. I, I certainly couldn't have articulated this back in 1999 or 2000, but we are we are the the watchmen on the watchtowers, um, and it's it's our noble obligation to hold up mirrors to ourselves and to our neighbors to say, can we just take a moment and and see ourselves? Because if we don't, we're we're just going to unravel into entropy. And so the more that we can continue to, to have a, a moment of intersection to, to, to build empathy and understanding for the world in which we live, that's, I don't know if I could think of a better calling. Um, and so it, I, I, I like to say that I think theater found me. I, I, I fell into it. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know uh, what I would do without it sort of in my, my world right now. Uh, so anyways, that, um, that just burgeoned and I thought, I, I don't know, I thought maybe I was going to be an actor <laughs> as we all do probably in the, those emerging years of our life. Uh, but what ended up happening, um, this is a really curious, it, it sort of dovetails into how I got down here to Georgia in the first place. Another just really unexpected transition. So by the time I, uh, was, was poised to graduate um, from my from my undergrad, I had been exploring the possibility of uh, maybe going to grad school. I was thinking it was going to be related more so to arts administration because during my my tenure at Campbell, while I was continuing to perform and, and be involved in a creative way, I was also finding an opportunity to uh, work with our department chair and um, uh, theater administrative assistants and, and just sort of the operational aspects of, of the work that we did. And that, I found that extremely uh, uh, exciting and interesting. And it's probably because of my, I, I love organization and uh, uh, the idea of, of trying to make sure that there are clear parameters and systems in place to make something work. Did, it, did you come from a place of, um, I'm sure not originally, but... I guess it was part of your interest, like, oh, I, I see how this works and I can improve it, or is it was it just, oh, this is cool? It was it was a both and. It was a both and for sure. So there was a there was an intrinsic pull to, um, again, I think that that larger understanding of, oh, okay, so there actually there is operational uh, infrastructure behind what's showing up on that stage, um, 
and something that I think many people just forget or, or are not aware of at all. Uh, and so th- including many people on the performance. Uh, of course, <laughs> of course. Um, so yeah, the, it was, and, and because of the size of our department, I had the ability to swim in all of those pools, uh, which I'm so grateful for along with learning technical skills and things of that nature. So you really were getting a taste of the, a, a full life as a theater artist and having the exposure to as many different aspects of this craft in this, uh, this, this lane in which I, you know, I now live and work. And you were mature enough to take advantage of it. Absolutely. Well, because Absolutely. that's not the case for, True. for, for the person across the table from <laughs> you and many, many other people. <laughs> well, I just saw it as, and again, I, I think it's just because I, I just, I, I just love learning. And so when something's presented to me that I've, that I haven't experienced yet, or that just piques some degree of curiosity, I want to figure it out or at least, you know, date it for a while and then figure, <laughs> you know, to see if, see if I want to graft it into my life. But I'm, I, yeah, I think that's just how I'm wired. Uh, so end of the, my time in undergrad, um, I was exploring the possibilities of grad school. My oldest brother, um, David, who, uh, was living down here in Georgia at the time. He was teaching at the Lovett School. Uh, he was the middle school chaplain and also taught world religions and was um, a, re- a wrestling coach. He was in the process of, of planting a small church in, in uh, Austell. And so he had asked if I had any interest in coming down to assist him with that. And I, I did that brotherly thing of like, oh, yeah, David, I'll think about it. Absolutely. In the back of my mind, I had no plan of coming <laughs> Zero down Zero interest at the time. Zero interest. Uh, I was like, great, awesome. You're good, you're good. That's, your, that's your calling. That's your mission. Perfect. Um, not mine. Um, about 10 days, week and a half or so before graduation, uh, one of my dear friends um, was killed in a car accident. Um, Brooke Hudgens, uh, who I had just really met that year. We were in choir together. We sat next to each other. She was an alto. I was a tenor. And uh, she was heading home with two friends. She lived in Alabama, so she was driving. She actually was killed here in Georgia. Um, and so they never made it home. They, 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 there was rain involved, the car hydroplane, they hit a tree, and all three were, were dead on impact. Um, and it was the first time I had run into, I'd experienced death through uh older family members my grandfather uh but it was the first time i'd ever had any impact with someone who was my contemporary and who was my age and it just rattled my world uh it was it was a really uh, and and, and again being on the doorstep of graduation there was all these mixed like something's ending and this this event happens and i don't know what i'm doing with my 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 life uh and so what it did is it really it recalibrated my my head and my heart and what I felt like I needed to do was invest some time in someone else and, and in assisting someone else and putting that energy into helping someone. And maybe that was a a way to cope or sort of work through the grief. Uh, But what that ended up translating into and how that manifested was I told David, all right, I'll come down. And so literally I graduated on a Sunday um, and then no, it was, a, it was a Monday, and the, I think it was the Wednesday of that week. I had packed up all of my stuff, and, and I drove down to Georgia. And, uh, I mean, really had very little idea of what I was going to do. So, ended up starting to assist him with this project. It was not in any uh, position to provide some form of substantial income. So, David continued to teach at Love It, and I ended up having to find a job. The only job I could find was at Six Flags. 
over Georgia, not in the entertainment department. No, no, no. I we, we would never think that. <laughs> uh, and because I moved down here in the middle of May, the season was already sort of well underway and staffed. Um, I found my way into a rides operation position, um, at which I excelled tremendously. <laughs> yeah, so and I when got, I, I got questions, yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, how do you find a job that's like, like what made okay. Six Flags even come on the radar? I don't, well, it's because literally I was just looking for something uh, really sort of a, um, uh, maybe part time in hope of something becoming full time. But it was, it was just out of necessity for needing some income. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a tremendous amount of savings moving down here. And again, David was very clear about this, this, this position because of the newness of what this, this launch is with this church is. We, there's no guarantee that there's going to be anything substantial coming in that can be used as a means of consistent support. So uh, at that point in time, just looking around for work, that was the only place that seemed to be hiring. And I probably on paper was very overqualified. Was, I'm kind of surprised you got uh, hired. I, well, yes. Like well, to do but here's the thing though. What ended up happening was they were just so desperate. I think they were already lo- the tr- attrition was already like, happening in may before the summer season yeah, even right. which is you know one thing i maybe should have clocked and and uh run away from um but i uh i i i just sort of it became again i look back on it now and i wouldn't have thought about it then but i i, I think about it now it may have been sort of the perfect bridge in transitioning to uh to georgia in that it, it not that it was mindless work but it just required a different skill set um what I loved the most was people and just the engagement that I had with my coworkers and just the, the patrons that were coming through the park. It what was, ride were you on? Oh gosh. Okay. So I, I, I graduated many times. I, I accelerated <laughs> super fast. So what are they, what's the, what's the lowest ride? Well, like, you know what? It depends. So I was in section three and I'm not sure if all the sections are the same anymore, but I was in the area that housed, um, Thunder river, the sky buckets and at that time deja vu and deja vu is no longer there. That's, that was my, uh, sort of primo, uh, position at deja vu. What um, does deja vu do? So, okay. So deja vu was a butterfly coaster that, uh, also had two. Ta- so it, uh, what, what, what happened first is you would, you would be on the, the train. It would pull you forward and up. So you're facing the sky and then it would drop you. Uh, backwards backwards so um, and I can't remember if it was I think you were up 60 feet in the air they would drop you and so then you would go back through the carriage house go through these butterfly loops and end up on a mirrored track just facing the opposite direction so now you're facing the ground and then it pulls you up and drops you again and then you butterfly back around and you come back up and you're facing the sky one more time and then it sort of slows you down and brings you back into the house so it's a boomerang boomerang butterfly coaster that's basically what they called it um, the only problem with deja vu <laughs> is that once the, and I'm sure somebody from six flags is going to send a cease and desist. Um, yeah. uh, the ride is no longer there. So I feel like I can, I can talk about, um, uh, whatever the, the lore of deja vu. Um, so the, the park purchased and installed the ride, the organization or the company that had, had created and manufactured the roller coaster very quickly went out of business. And I think they were in Europe. So now you have a park that has, and I think there was another version of this coaster at one of the other, uh, oh gosh, one of the other Six Flags. It was just called something different, but the same, the same structure. Right. Uh, but what ended up happening is one, once that company folded, there was no support for that <laughs> <Yeah>. ride. <laughs> so it was up to your own internal technicians to sort of figure the thing out. Right. 
It was crazy, Michael. This thing would shut down, oh, I don't know, a dozen times a day. Here's here's the thing that most patrons uh, would never have known, but I did. So I was <laughs> I was operating that thing. And so once you depress the button to engage the ride and the platform lowers and the the the, the train is about to leave the carriage house, uh, I knew literally before the ride ever started if I needed to call maintenance. I would get an error message literally as I started the ride and I can't say, oh, sorry, folks, you're about to be suspended <laughs> and you never knew where it was going to happen. If they were suspend, if they were stuck staring at the sky, that's one thing. That's maybe tolerable, right? No. no well, well, but, <laughs> but, I, I but the alternative <laughs> is being stuck on the opposite side facing the ground and feeling your weight against those harnesses thinking this is it. This is how I meet my demise. Um, both of those things happened, by the oh way. Oh my gosh. Uh, so, but I'm, so as the ride is starting, I'm already on the phone calling operations maintenance saying, please get over here. We're about to have a, 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 an emergency. Right. And so then, of course, the ride would shut down and people, you know, would be waiting the queue line for four hours on a summer day to ride this thing. We would have to shut it down. Many people would end up leaving. They'd already been there for several hours. I was about to say, if a ride shuts down and I'm in line, I'm getting, I'm done. Yeah, but I, I, that was, it was, there was just this intrigue because people were fascinated with the operation of the, the coaster. And it was a cool thing when it worked. Uh, it was just not a consistent thing. And ultimately, I'm not sure if it was the safest thing. Um, all that being said, it's no longer there. And so they don't have to worry about uh, maintaining that coaster anymore. But um, uh, I ended up, I ended up working there for I, really that entire summer. And then I uh, I got a job as the box office um, manager at Horizon Theater Company in Little Five Points. I had originally uh, interviewed for a position at Seven Stages. I think for a similar type of just admin position in box office. And I didn't get that position, but um, Ray Varney, who was, I believe the managing director at that time said, Hey, I'm going to call uh, my friend, Stephanie Harvey, who's down at horizon uh, because I think they have a position open and that might be a, a really good fit for you. So, okay, so let's, let's rewind mm-hmm. for two seconds. So you were now actively pursuing. I was. Theater yes. So, so what, okay. So what ended up happening is I think the, by the, by the time I got to the end of that summer, there was just this realization of, okay, Justin, yeah. it's time to find some agency and to, to you're, you're here, you're living in, you're living in Atlanta now. Um, let's, let's stop dilly dallying. And now that we are not in a place where uh, we're just sort of desperately looking for work and you've found a place to land for a little while, now you can sort of get your wits about you and figure out, okay, what's the next step? Um, and so I was actively pursuing, and, and in my mind, it was it was only geared towards some sort of administrative, uh, kind of entry level, whatever. Um, because I didn't feel like I tr- I possessed any tremendous amount of skill set to uh, uh, work in development or marketing. Because of what I had done at Campbell was much more of sort of a, a, a general buffet style of gleaning information and experiences within sort of that administrative side of things. Uh, and then I, I knew that I was interested in, in perhaps pursuing some acting opportunities. Uh, so I, was, I, I ended up, um, I think it was atlantaperforms.com or yes. .biz or maybe both. Well, no, I think at the time there was just one and then later it became right. two Right, so that was, that was a thing back in the day. They are no longer uh, around anymore. Um, but I remember uh, sort of joining that, submitting my headshot and resume and... Um, uh, 
uh, sort of tepidly pursuing some of those opportunities. Um, and again, it was a it was a point for me where I wasn't quite sure what uh, what the the driving force of of what I wanted to do within the art form was. So it wasn't like I was gangbusters knocking down doors for auditions and it wasn't like I was gangbusters knocking down doors for an administrative position. It was a little bit of like, okay, 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 we'll see what happens, right? Um, So uh, was at Horizon for uh, a portion of of the 03-04 season and then uh, quite honestly, it really it wasn't a matter of not having artistic fulfillment. It ended up sort of just become becoming a financial means to need to look for something else. The beautiful thing about Horizon was uh, they were paying like full insurance and and everything like that. But the salary was was uh, was just wanting for a, a period of time. And you know, moving into that uh, point where uh, student loans start kicking back in once you have matriculated. Right. Uh, again, adulting. Hello, everyone. Is uh, is a curious and interesting and sometimes difficult thing. So I needed to make a decision to satisfy that, and um, I met someone who I can't remember. It was a. It was just an acquaintance of my brother who had a friend sort of this weird tree of 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 uh contact there's a gentleman by the name of Jeff Stedman who was in town from Colorado Springs and he was starting a movie theater a second run movie theater in Roswell it's still there it's called Picture Show and he knew someone that my brother David knew and uh he was hiring just like basically looking to staff this entire movie theater and I thought I have no, I have no experience whatsoever, but the the uh, the 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 salary was pretty tempting. I thought, well, I mean, what do I have to lose, right? And maybe, maybe if I can again find some degree of financial stability, that's going to open up some other possibilities and avenues to figure out how I want to direct my connectivity to uh, to the arts, uh, to live theatrical performance, and so I ended up. Gosh, I feel like I've lived 18 lives, Michael. I ended up becoming the manager of Picture Show Entertainment. I've never managed a movie theater before in my life. Um, and so I'm in the process of helping to hire projectionists when that was still a thing. Right. Um, uh, ushers, concession stand workers, uh, I, fully sort of staffing and employing the entire thing. What was so curious is as I took the job, I was cast in a show. <laughs> um and it was one of those situations where uh, I I kind of didn't know what to do. And so I talked to the manager and he said, well, as long as this doesn't become like a regular thing, I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. So it was a it was a production with an organization called Art Within that is uh, no longer in residence here in Georgia. I, I don't remember where they've relocated to, but it was a production of a play called Three on the Seesaw that was being produced at 14th Street Playhouse before SCAD bought the building. And so that was my first professional introduction as an actor to uh, the city. It was the first time that I met and worked with Bill Murphy of all people, uh, who's an actor here in town, William S. Murphy. Um, And we, we lovingly sort of reflect back on that as gosh, you and I were in this, we were in this show at the same time as, as actor colleagues. Uh, And it's just, you know, it's just a curious, um, this is before he became an equity member. And anyways, it was just, um, it's funny 
when you intersect with certain individuals that you still have some relationship with today, uh, I think it's it, it's 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 funny and curious and wonderful to see how your lives have evolved. Yeah, sometimes you, in tandem, sometimes apart, then. but there still is that recognition of like, oh, you're you're this person now, and I knew you right. back then when not anyone else knew you, <laughs> when no, no one else knew you. Um, That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And so I, I, we, we still have some, some loving connectivity uh, regarding that today. So uh, needless to say, as you can probably see where this is going, right? Where it's, there, there was going to end up being a conflict of interest because my heart was pulling me in one other direction. And if you've, by the way, if you've never worked at a movie theater, particularly in management, you're there forever. I was pulling 12-hour shifts like nobody's business. Really? Yeah. I would not have... Oh, yeah. Um, often because even with assistance, there was just the need to... Uh, there was just so much oversight that ended up having to happen. And it, I, I imagine that maybe had I stayed with the organization longer, you would get to a position where you could probably pull yourself back from that. But because it's it was a brand new venture, uh, there was this need to sort of be on the ground for an extended period of time. Um, and then, all right, another like bizarro left turn in my life. Uh, someone had mentioned the possibility of considering, um, uh, education here, like being a teacher in Georgia. Some, I don't even remember who it was or what I was talking about. And, and I remember, but I remember hearing this question, have you ever thought about becoming a teacher? Was this back, you know, because Georgia had an yes. initiative. Okay. Yes. I wasn't aware of that until this person was sort of contextualizing it. And again, I wish I could remember who that was. Uh, but they sort of launched this idea of, yeah, you should consider that. And I was like, wait, I didn't even, I didn't even go to school to do that. But because of that initiative and because of um, it was it was a program that was similar to one that I was familiar with in North Carolina called Lateral Entry. This idea that if you had a degree in a specific field, not they weren't. I think STEM was part of that, but they were even uh, open to fine arts or other um, what would have been considered sort of elective courses. If you had a degree in training in that particular field, but no degree in teaching, you could basically intersect as what they would sort of consider an entry level teaching position or not fully vested. So they would give you up to five years to complete all of your credentials. So what that means, excuse me. <coughs> Take a sip of my coffee. I'm gonna come yeah, back. Yeah, no worries. Um, I want to hear how your experience was, and I have a buddy whose experience was <laughs> will be shorter than yours. <laughs> <laughs> so you, they would give you with this um, lateral entry program. They would give you five years to complete your credentials, which also included the need to complete a master's in education. So I was fully aware of what those requirements were, and maybe I. Looking back on it now, this might have been a little devious, uh, but I thought, hmm, I don't know if I if I want to complete that degree because I'm just not sure if this is what I want to do with with my life. I'm very open to this possibility again because I'm just curious. So let's just sort of test the waters and see what happens. Uh, and I ended up getting hired at this was so bizarre too. It was the only school I interviewed with. And they gave me the job in about 20 minutes. Again, crazy things. Um, I was hired as a secondary instructor, along with a woman who was about a, oh gosh, 20, 25 year teaching veteran. She was moving back from Indiana to Georgia. She, I can't remember if she grew up here, just lived here for a period of time. And so I was going to be teaching some basically like intro theater survey classes, a really low key, low skill set tech class, just enough for exposure, right? For these students. 
So uh, this was in, gosh, this was in the late summer, early fall, I guess, of 2004. Three weeks into school, I it was, it was over Labor Day. I'm in Virginia visiting my mom. I get a phone call from this other teacher saying, hi, Justin, I hope you're having a good weekend, enjoying your vacation this long weekend. I just wanted to let you know that I've resigned. <laughs> And that I am, I'm moving back to Indiana, to which I was just gobsmacked. And come to find out, she was engaged in a custody battle in Indiana. She had effectively kidnapped her own child, moved from the state of Indiana to Georgia. And the judge said, if you don't get back here in X amount of time, you will never see your child again. Oh, wow. And I was like, what? Go. Why are you here? Why are you on the phone with me? That, what? Yeah. So she moved back, and I ended up inheriting all of her classes. She was teaching advanced acting. <laughs> yeah. She was teaching. We had um, our school was sanctioned. Uh, to, what is this? A high school? Middle school? A high school. Yeah, Woodland High School. Sorry, yeah, in Cartersville, Georgia. Um, and there was a we were we had the tenets of being sort of a performing arts magnet school, although within the county there was sort of differing and contentious opinions as to whether we wanted to fully support that or whether we wanted to homogenize every high school. And anyways, it was never sort of uber clear. Um, and by the time that I left, I, I, I don't think it's designated as a performing arts high school anymore. I could be wrong. So if someone from Woodlands listening to this, you can correct me. Uh, but um, I ended up assuming those upper level courses, which just scared the bejesus out of me. Uh, we had, we were sanctioned to teach IB, this international baccalaureate program that is sort of beyond the scope of even uh, like an AP course where you can get um, uh, collegiate credit. And uh, it, it just is a tremendous sort of distinction on your resume. And it's often for kids who are looking to get into some premier schools. It was designed for um, uh, uh, ambassadors and um, children of like politicians that are in uh, a variety of different countries. So it's, it's, it's sort of a geared, high-level, rigorous training to possibly get you back into maybe like an Ivy League school or elsewhere. Gotcha. I was not trained on how to teach that <laughs> curriculum. And all of a sudden, it's like, you have four students that are enrolled in this IB class. Uh, good luck. And you're how old now? This I, is oh gosh, okay, so If. I think I actually started... Okay, so I, when I graduated uh, college, I was... Let's see, 17, 18, 19. I was only 20. I didn't turn 21 until, because I technically started, let's see, 18, 19, 20. Oh, you salutatorians are. <laughs> it was bizarre. Well, you know, my birthday is so late in the year. It's, it's August 30th. It's coming up next week. But I w we didn't start school until Labor Day in Virginia. So I was right up against the margin of when I could go to school. Right. Because if it was after Labor Day, I'd have to wait. So I, I actually was younger sometimes just by a handful of months than everyone else. So I started college when I was 17. I turned 18 three or four weeks into school because we started in August. Um, and now you're out teaching. Now I'm out teaching and I'm literally... Four years what, older than these kids. That's it. <laughs> that was the bizarre thing. Particularly those who were seniors. There were like 18-year-old seniors and you're like, I, you're like my brother. You're, my, you know, you're the age of one of my siblings, which is so weird. And I'm sure it was disconcerting too for some of the students. Like, who's this Joe Blow of like, what? I'm sure. I have to call him Mr. Anderson? Exactly. This is weird. Um, yeah, so that was it was an odd engagement anyways so 
Uh, this teacher leaves, assume these classes. She'd already cast a show that was in rehearsal for the Georgia High School One Act competition. I assumed that show. It literally, Michael's baptism by fire. Completely. Crazy. And here's the thing that made it even crazier. So, like, I'm, I'm going to give you the long scope, and then I can go back and give you some detail. Over the course of the four years that I ended up being at uh, Woodland, we had three different administrators. <laughs> so you can, you, can, you can take that as you will or unpack that as you will. Um, what that ultimately ended up meaning for me is that I was just under the radar the whole time because there was no consistent person sort of to be accountable to. And again, I look back on it now and I think there is no way this could happen in any other situation. There's no way that anyone else would sort of be gifted with this almost autonomy to kind of do what you wanted to do uh, and really have no one saying no um, I, had a, I had one conversation with um, our school administrative secretary, like the, the head um, support uh, person for the principal. And all she said was this. It's like, Justin, as long as you have money in the account, I don't care what you do. <laughs> That's she just said, amazing. just make sure that those shows are good because I'm going to come watch every single one of them. But I never had to submit a script for approval. I never had to ask whether we could or could not deal with particular subject matter. I was never asked to edit the language of a script. And I'm, I'm hearing from all of these other high school teachers saying, oh, yeah, there's this whole rigor. So like, yeah, we got to whatever we have to we can only do plays that deal with this or whatever. And if there's any of this language, we have to strike it. And you're directing all these plays, correct? Yeah. And so what ended up happening um, within with really within a, a few weeks, um, it was very clear to me that the previous uh, educators that had been a part of the the program were—I don't want to say they weren't doing their job—but uh, these kids were really only either creating or sort of exposed to uh, like these self-devised projects, and they were all sort of like very angsty and going to start a garage band or whatever. And there's a place for that. I'm not dismissing that, but there was a huge gap when it came to oh, who's Tennessee Williams? <laughs> what do you mean? Who? That's it's that's that's a state, right? Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. Um, so you would find this massive gap in terms of just knowledge of the canon and of what's even going on in the contemporary landscape of American theater or theater across the world. Uh, and so I just and because I didn't go to school to be an educator, I had to make a decision and sort of figure out, like how do I make this work. And so we just decided. I just decided I'm just going to do stuff that I love or stuff that I'm interested in, and hopefully we're all going to learn something. Uh, That's nice. so what, what, Do you remember the, the one act that you just that you started off with? Like, yeah, that, it's that a, you inherited? yeah, it's a play called Candid. Um, Michael, oh gosh, I can't remember the, the playwright's last name. Sorry, Michael. Uh, but it was a, uh, a story about a, 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 a young high school boy who was a photographer going through a series of difficult circumstances with his family and just feeling lost, really. Um, and so it had already been in, in uh, rehearsal, and we ended up like changing the entire design concept. Uh, I really didn't know what I was doing. Is I was this just the first time you've first, directed? I had directed a couple of one acts in undergrad, but very sort of tepidly and it, within a, a scope of a more of an exercise than actually fully engaging in, oh, okay, so these are the tenets of what a director does and how one prepares. Uh, and so that was all brand new to me. Um, but sort of dove in head first, and it was almost the, it was that idea of like, don't we often work better when there's a deadline, like something looming? 
Um, maybe that's not true for everyone, but this competition was happening on this particular day, and these right. kids were committed. It was like, okay, well, I'm not going to let them down. We're going to do this thing. And theater kids don't play. They don't like the ones play. That are serious about theater. Correct. Like, eh, Correct. Cut you any slack. No. Whatsoever. But what we ended up doing was, uh, I felt like we created something really compelling, and um, f- we were the the very first time in that school's existence we won our region. I love yeah. that. <laughs> and so we went to state. We didn't we didn't win at state, but it was an incredible opportunity. And and thereafter, I think all except for one year, um, uh, we we won our region. And I think the highest that we placed in state was something like uh, fourth place or whatever. Well, that's gonna I, help with the autonomy, also. It totally it totally did. Well, it was it it certainly helped with the support in that. Oh, they're bringing some degree of recognition, so we can just focus on other things, and no big deal. Um, and yeah, it certainly validated it to to a large extent. And I was also of that mindset, particularly with the one at competition. Um, and I was, I don't know if you would call me a purist, but I i was i was a little miffed at schools that would do cuttings of plays. Um, there was one in particular, I'm not going to name the school, but they cut down Les Mis to 50 minutes. Oh, and that's what they put up? Yes, that was their, that was their submission. I thought, guys, okay, for one, they're... You're just singing. You're just singing the show. And that's fine. That's totally fine. But this is this is a one-act competition, okay? It's not a, uh, let's let's compress something into a one-act. I, I hear you. You know what I mean? And I just never felt, I never felt like the rules were clear enough and that they probably should have adjusted to say, no, it has to be a legitimate published or self-written or whatever one-act play. You can't, you, you actually were not giving you permission to cut this thing down. But what ended up happening, and I understand sort of the logistics and the, uh, the financial implications is many schools would produce a full production of whatever said you know, title was. And then, so they would run that for their school and then they would do a truncated version for the one X. So you're not, ba- you're not producing two separate shows and using two separate pools of resources. Right. So the one here was like, okay, okay, okay. I was like, but I just still don't think it's fair. Yeah, I think your young and righteous, uh, opinion that's is where I land on this also. <laughs> that's what it was. I feel like I was trying to champion and carry this particular banner and nobody was getting on board. Um, so, uh, we ended up, uh, partnering with the, uh, music, department and we had a here's the crazy thing michael we had a full dance program at our high school which is still there um terry kayser is uh the head of it she's also the the um the owner and the the um um the the leader of cartersville school of ballet and she's married to chris kayser who of course is like one of our a-list actors here in town and so it's bizarre i knew i developed a relationship with terry before i ever met chris uh, and again, it's just weird. It's like how you sort of dovetail and sort of work around these circles with individuals and realize, oh, oh, you're like, oh, you're like that actor. Right. Okay. Oh, that yeah, that guy. Um, and uh, so we we ended up producing, by that second year, years two through four that I was there, we were producing almost 10 shows a season. So who were you, when you're having a moment of, I don't know what to do? Yeah. Was there anybody you could call, or was there anybody who helped you deal with this, uh, or were you just, just powering through? Sort of. I mean, uh, I, there certainly were other uh, acquaintances through um, different high schools in in the area and within the state, and you would intersect with those people mostly face to face at these competitions or Thescon or things like that. Um, but some of it was just having the tenacity to figure it out. And having, uh, you know, I, was, I, I had a tremendous amount of resources in parents. 
um, who would volunteer time to come in and help build something or, you know, someone that's a contractor and then they ended up, you know, throwing up some framework or whatever. Um, but yeah, we we just did some audacious things. I think the craziest thing, okay, maybe several cra- crazy things. I remember, oh gosh, uh, we did a production of Antigone with 150 people in the cast. What? Yeah. So what I wanted was uh, we we recreated basically the uh, the the funeral march of these dying soldiers being taken back from the battlefield, except for. Uh, Antigone's brother. Uh, and so that was the opening of the show, basically. And so I literally wanted a Greek chorus to sing. How did and you so, get that many kids okay, to be so I, we, we uh, uh, conscripted two chorus classes and we literally planted them in the audience to be a vocal chorus throughout the entire production. And so someone would give a, uh, you'd hear a pitch and then literally voices around you as you're an audience member, you're like, what is going on? People are singing all around me. Uh, this happened to be, it wasn't a Greek song. It was, it was a, it was a Latin dirge, but it was the same. So it was like the tonality that I wanted. Um, as these, uh, individuals are coming in, in, um, uh, 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 those white snow fatigues and gas masks and priests that are all in white with uh, their their you know faces whited out with uh, white contacts they just look like these floating ghosts with incense um, uh, you know canters it was bizarre Sounds and wonderful amazing. and carrying uh, you know draped um, stretchers and like sarcophagi up onto the stage and you have these ginormous stairs that were built that were I, I think they were twelve feet tall. Uh, 10 or 15 feet wide and we had two sections of them and they were they were stairs on both sides so anytime there was an entrance of the royal family they always ascended from upstage and so they, they would literally rise above everyone and everything was played every action was played on the stairs or on the deck um, and we want our region people like the 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 adjudicators I just remember one saying I, I don't even know how to I can't even give this some type of score because I've never experienced something like this in my life. Um, and so we won that region. We went to state and uh, uh, I, th- I think that's where we got fourth. Um, again, I was also that uh, we're doing a play. We're not doing a musical for this one act. My sort of my purest ideology. Um, and then one of the last shows that I, I directed and produced was um, Mary Zimmerman's adaptation of the Odyssey. Mm. And, what and if 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 you know it or don't, it's a three and a half hour epic story of Odysseus and all of those journeys. Um, now here's an example of we produced that play, and then we decided to use that and truncate it for one act, but we totally redesigned the concept. This again, it was just bizarre, but I had support for people to from people to do this. So for the original production, uh, I built a pool on stage. <laughs> nice. And I remember we we built sandboxes that basically covered the entire apron and had sand trucked in. So we had students like playing in sand, throwing sand at one another. We had students swimming. So I, I want to interrupt you. So where did you, because you weren't a theater person in high school. No. You weren't seeing a lot of theater. Where did you get your influences? Where did you where did you get the chutzpah uh, to know how to do this? Uh, uh, I, I, and where did you where did you learn along the way? Sure, I think it was. Um, I certainly had become a greater consumer of the art form. Um, I think within college and and thereafter, and it, it was just uh, 
leaning into a tremendous amount of research as well. Um, what's very curious is I had never been to New York until, uh, oh gosh, 2006. So I, I didn't have any real exposure to the commercial world. I'd seen some tours and things like that. Um, first time I went to New York was actually to take some of my current students to audition for some schools up in New York city, which was really just sort of a, a, a lovely gift for all of us. Um, but yeah, I uh, I don't know. I just think um, people probably often say this, and you know, maybe it's it's it sounds a little precious. But I, there's there's just an imaginative landscape that is sort of constantly etching itself in my mind's eye, and particularly when I can dove, uh, like uh, make it specific to a, uh, a singular project, there stuff starts formulating. Is this visual? Yeah, it's visual primarily, primarily and sometimes well, and sometimes it's um, it, it does sort of present itself as like a mood or a tone or a color or music. And I think that's for like, for me, I am so responsive to music because it's such a fabric of, of, of who I am and what I did. That was, that was even more an influence in my life than visual aesthetic for a long period of time. So I'm very sort of attuned to, uh, the auditory tonality of things um, and hearing something that might inspire this, that or the other, or might serve as uh it could even serve as, as sort of a, a an auditory counterpoint to something going on, um, yeah. You know, and 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 part of it too was being around the energy of these high schoolers. And once, and I'm I'm a firm believer believer of this. Like once you set the bar, once you ask people to rise to an occasion, I really believe that people will try. And once you see uh, some modem of success uh, or interest, it it becomes very contagious. Uh, if it's if it's nurtured and supported in the right way, and that's what ended up happening, there was just this fervor that these kids brought that just continuously inspired me. And so it wasn't a matter of like, oh, how do we one up ourselves or sort of top what we did last year, but it just continued to open up possibilities. Of I never saw these kids as just high schoolers; I saw them as they they were living, breathing young artists. And so that was part of it too that I didn't go into this this and maybe it. It was, you know, for a period of time, I was so close to their age that I wasn't looking at it as this um, uh, this idea of, okay, well, I'm the instructor and you guys are the, are, are the instructees. You're the students who are just absorbing the information and, and neither the twain shall meet. It was as if we were, we were all sort of being shepherded along together. And we're doing all this together. We're in the trenches. And you um, weren't old and cynical yet. No, you know, and, and, but, and, that, and that's what's so curious is that I just... Um, I, I know that that is apt to happen. And some of that just, is, it, it, I, what I, I think I'm learning now is that I chalk that up to familiarity more so than the work itself. I think what ends up happening is, is, is we become so familiar with our routine and it's the mundanity of that that ends up eroding the creative inspiration. Um, and it's, I don't think it's anyone sort of waking up one day and saying, I hate high schoolers, I hate my life, I don't want to do this anymore. But that's what it is. And I think, but that's human nature too. You know, yeah, I, completely. I think, yeah, you know, and so there's always this need to, um, and it, it may not present itself in um, uh, a regimented time frame. But there's a need to revitalize something, or just calibrate, or turn, or change resources, or whatever, just to to galvanize to your own. Of, totally, totally. How, and so how did you set the bar high? Like, do you, oh uh, gosh, like, or how and how would somebody else entering in a situation Ooh. like that? Like, well, it, I, I, uh, it's too easy for me to say I don't know because I think I'm an anomaly because this this I don't think this would happen in any other situation. But I do really think that had I had more. Um, I don't want to say regulation, but had I had more um, 
uh, sort of consistent and um, uh, opinionated regulation or, or oversight from an administrative body. Not to say that we didn't have a department chair and all that jazz. So it's not like I'm just running around making, you know, theater in the woods or whatever. There were, uh, we had a department chair and all of that was super being super supportive of what we were doing. Um, but in terms of like upper administration, I really don't know if I would have had the leash to do what I was able to do. And because I was in a position where I didn't want to fail these kids and I, was uh, I had inherited this new situation. We ended up, long story short, we ended up uh, hiring a, an additional teacher um, and things ended up being fine. But for a period of about three or four months, really that first half of the the, the, the school year, it was me and a long-term sub just trying to make this thing work and sort of figuring out how do I help meet the needs of these kids? And also, gosh, now that I'm in, I am in this position, what are the possibilities of what we could do with this? We also ended up um, our... Um, uh, shop space, which was sort of serving as shop slash classroom slash green room, this big kind of warehouse room, we converted it into a black box theater. So we had two operational spaces at oh, our, that's fun. Yeah, a 986 seat proscenium has more so an auditorium because it was used for every event and then our black box space. Um, so again, and we were producing in both spaces, a, a, just a crazy amount of stuff. Uh, and the other thing too, like going back to what I was saying about the, what I perceived to be either um, uh, wanting exposure or ill preparedness for some of these students, particularly those who wanted to pursue this as a career um, and not really having experience with the American theater canon or, or, or otherwise. Um, I just felt like we had to do it, it. It not only was about quality, but it was about quantity. I felt like I had to make up for lost time to say, okay, um, well, some of you are juniors and you have an aspiration to do this that, or the other. Whew, all right. Um, okay. How do I give you a crash course? Just based on what I know, even from my small finite window of time in undergrad and what I thought I knew of the world, how can I help prepare you for the next step and make you competitive? Well, that's amazing. So, um, but that, you know, and it, it, what was so curious is that's, I mean, that's where I fell in love with directing. I didn't know that that's what I wanted to do until I worked with high schoolers on a regular basis. And you got to direct just a ton just of a plays and a tiny amount of Incredible amount of work. Exhaustive amount of work. And so going back to what I said before about that um, sort of that looming requirement list of within five years, you're going to have this master's of education, blah, blah, blah. I knew I wasn't pursuing that. And it became very clear in that first year that I didn't want to do that because I didn't know that I had an interest in in graduate study right then and there but there was just something that prevented me from saying yeah you know I should I should finish that thing or whatever because what I was what I was learning and and sort of gleaning and experiencing I just felt like it it, there would be a chapter change at some point um really what we were doing was completely unsustainable. You know what I mean? I could not have done this for perpetuity. It was fast and furious and blazing as quickly as we could until I knew there would have to be a change. And and it was a self-imposed one. So I decided internally, I never talked about this with any of my advisors or anything saying, okay, I'm not going to get this done. And so I have to be prepared to make an exit by the, before that fifth year hits. Right. And so I had that in the back of my mind always. From From almost the the very beginning, I would say like end of that first semester, I almost knew, uh, if not a hundred percent, about 90% sure that 
if if not the full five, at least like four years. And part of it was I I wanted to make a commitment to the incoming freshman classes. Like I want to see you guys through graduation because I had an advisement group outside of my theater students. So I thought, you know what, I I can make that a timeline. That's kind of perfect. Timing, yeah, it's perfect actually. timing. So uh, I can live with you guys for four years and let's see what let's see what kind of craziness we can get into. Um, and that's what we did. Now, do you have a life at all outside of this? <laughs> I can't not, imagine you did. I mean, not much. Um, I mean, but I really, uh, I, I, I made that intentional choice to invest all of that energy into kids. I mean, it feels like kids. grad school. It, it totally like was. A, but see, a here's more the thing. Absolutely, school. and and that's what was so curious, and and really probably sort of burgeoned the the desire to want to learn more. It, and again, it wasn't about feeling like I didn't have experiences, but it was what I was learning, or sort of what I was starting to feel within those four years was. I, I feel like I'm providing feedback for these students. Who's providing feedback for me? Yeah. Who's helping me continue to craft my skill set so I'm not falling into this trap or that uh, sort of go-to choice or something? saying, uh-uh, Justin, that's that thing you do. You know what I mean? Let's Can we find another way around that? Or that's not clear or this, that, or the other. And again, it goes back to the idea of familiarity. And when you when you don't have someone who's sort of poking and prodding at that, not for the sake of being uh, you know, annoying or malicious, but it's for the, 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 the sake of being accountable yeah, growth. and growth, um, you start to you start craving that. And I think that's what it was by the end of that that fourth year for sure. And so really in that fourth year, I had started my um uh, studies uh, and research on, on on where to possibly attend for grad school. And so I, I landed on Rutgers University. Uh, they were in one of the top five uh, schools for directing at the time. And I had this mindset, again, as a, you know, a young, uh, <laughs> unfettered, mid-20s artist thinking, oh gosh, I feel like I need to be somewhere in the vicinity of New York. Um, I need to be in the backyard of whatever's going on. So I have access to work and people have access to mine and uh, yeah, it's a 40-minute train ride from the city to New Brunswick, New Jersey to come and see a show. And Plus, blah, blah, Rutgers blah. is a great, I mean, it has it, a great theater Totally, Totally, absolutely. Mason Gross School of the Arts, it literally is is phenomenal. Powerhouse. Rigor, rigor, rigor. Um, it's curious. Uh, the directing program no longer exists today. They still have an, uh, an acting MFA in stage management and design. Um, but when um, Pam Berlin, uh, sorry, when Amy Saltz, who was the head of the program, uh, retired, they dissolved the program uh, because no one sort of wanted to assume it. And that's okay. I think that's, I think it ended up sort of being what it needed to be for a period of time. How do you get into directing grad school? Uh, Oh man. So uh, a a rigorous uh, application process. And then I had to go up to Jersey and and, well, in New York city and interview with any of the professors that had intersection with that department. Um, And I think honestly it was, I certainly, I, I, again, felt like I brought a, uh, a certain skill set or a degree of knowledge based on what I was doing with high schoolers, but I also knew full well that that may or may not translate when it came to uh, the rigor of higher education. So I think, honestly, what what endeared my acceptance was earnestness. It's because I wanted it so bad mm-hmm. um, and literally was willing to do whatever it took to... They can't see your work, right? Well, no. So I mean, just, so you, in, yeah, I mean, certainly you would send your resume and, you know... Um, uh, production photos, things of that nature. I, I think I had some small video clips of things we had done, like Crazy Antigone or uh, uh, The Odyssey. So I think there was a sense of, okay, this you did this with a high school? Okay, um, that's curious. So that there, there certainly was some merit in that work for sure, but I also knew that I wasn't resting on some lore of like, yeah, we went to a, the Georgia high school <laughs> one-act competition and uh, we placed fourth place. Uh, I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, again, all of, and all of these individuals, um, Amy Saltz, Pam Berlin, uh, Billy Carden, who's the artistic director of Ensemble Studio Theater in New York, 
are working professionals and they're intersecting with A-list people, uh, not just in New York City, but all over the, the not just the country, but the world. Uh, and they're all working at the same time while they're also trying to teach. Um, so, uh, but I also knew too, like I wanted a place that was going to force me to level up. I didn't want something that was just going to substantiate and affirm what I was currently doing. I was like, what's the point, right? We're talking Completely. about growth opportunities. So I, I, I chose the program and eventually the program chose me, uh, I think out of sheer uh, will of wanting to, really wanting to break down what I thought I knew and rebuild that thing back up. And that's exactly what that school did. Now here's, here's the curious incident because it seems to happen with every sort of chapter change in my life. And again, sort of another like a school started about three weeks in an event occurs very much like when I started teaching at the high school. So I began in uh, the fall of 2008 and now we all know what happened in the fall of 2008. So three or four, four weeks into school, the economy tanks. And that just starts working its way through the aquifer of, I mean, of the entire country and the world, but also public education. And so that starts affecting um, uh, TA uh, money. Mm. Um, that starts affecting endowment funds because things like are frozen, shut down. We're, like, we're, we're trying to stop the bleeding. And this necessity of not wanting to have a mass exodus of students, uh, the need to just continue to push more loan papers to say, we don't want you to leave, but this, this is what we're going to have to adjust to for the foreseeable future. Right. Um, and I'd already taken out a substantial amount of money to move to the Northeast anyway. It's just related to cost of living. So I already knew in a way what I was getting myself into, but it just made the picture that much more bleak for the foreseeable future. Can we briefly yeah. go, go just a little bit back? What other schools yeah. did you look at, if any, and how did you... So the, yeah, totally. You so I had, I had applied to uh, Roosevelt University in Chicago and Northwestern, uh, just outside of Chicago and Evansville, uh, and Florida State University. Okay. Um, and again, I was, I was really looking sort of, uh, not just at merit and sort of rankings of, of programs, but uh, having conversations with individuals that had some um, uh, affiliation with the school or maybe had graduated from the school or were teaching at the school. Um, and uh, just after a series of site visits and landing uh, at Rutgers, it, there was something that, that just seemed right about the fit. Um, and also the, the intimacy of the program it was myself and one other director. Uh, they were only bringing in two, uh, which was both intimidating and like wonderfully exciting at the same time. I was about to time. say that's amazing, right? Uh, and you had so, to feel so validated. Uh, you you do, but then also like you can't hide. Right. You can't <laughs> hide. I mean, we would have courses, um, you know, class periods where it's uh, David Ledoux was my uh, was the second in that program. It's it's him and I and a professor for three hours. And we would we would bring in outside artists, um, actors that were either part of uh, our current first year class or some of the uppers to work on scenes. But yeah, you couldn't. It's not like oh, I forgot to do my homework. I'll I'll sort of skate by till next class. No, 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 no. Did you get along with him? Absolutely. Yeah, and it was really great because we immediately there was no there was no competition other than sort of like who could create the clearest work. But we had two very different styles. Um, but that was it kept us accountable to each other because that was the drumbeat really of, of what we were trying to, to, to craft at Rutgers. Like how do we create something that is going to be the clearest uh, story for an audience to receive? And it was all about how, how 
you're engaging your actors or coaching or guiding your actors to affect someone else and allowing them to be affected by that person in return. Um, and so it, it really, again, uh, was just like the best kick in the, the ass I ever could have gotten boot camp wise of, all right, so you can't get caught up in this language or this sensibility of like, oh, we're just like compose these bodies on stage or whatever. It, it take all of that artifice away and get down to the heart of uh, the authenticity of the work. So I want to I want to come mm-hmm. back to that and get granular about this for a second. But but first of all, so what would you say your style was, and what yeah. was his? Uh, oh gosh, you I said you had well, two, I don't, two yeah, I don't styles. know if I could really articulate it other than I think our. Uh, just sort of our sensibilities and, and taste were slightly different. Okay. Um, so it's much more of a, like a subjective calibration than he's, he was this kind of, uh, director and I'm this kind of director, right? I think we were both trying to be, uh, collaborative, responsive artists, not auteurs and saying, okay, here's a vision. We're just going to puppet you into what we want to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I think, um, Okay, so going it may back not be to, a helpful yeah, question. Yeah, yeah I'm, so. I'm trying to think if, if I have anything more to answer or if I could make that more specific, and I'm not, I'm not sure that I can. That's okay. We'll come yeah, back other back. than I think, you, you, know, you know what I mean? Sometimes there, there are res, there's, there's a point of resonance in your, in your gut where you just know something is a thing and something else is a thing, even though you can't quite name it. Right, and those things are not the same. Yeah, they're not the same. Um, and so, but that was, that was sort of the beauty of, our, of us being together in that, uh, in that particular class because there was no, like I said, no inherent sense of like, oh, I'm competing with someone who feels like they're they're working or or that they're drawn to the same things that I'm drawn to. Uh, what the the level playing field was like is the work clear? Clear. Is the moment to moment work clear? Um, uh, like, and how are you communicating with your actors? How are you? Uh, is, that, is that the first class you? What's the like first class you take as a grad student in directing? What are they? Gosh, what are they trying to impart? To sure. You? So, well, what we what we did at Rutgers, and I imagine was still the case uh, after I left, was you were taking um, as much of the same coursework, not all of it, but as much of the same coursework as the actors, as well as your own directing courses, because. They, the reason you're spending so much time with the actors is to make sure we're all speaking the same language, which was super smart in, in, in my estimation. Uh, and also, you're participating with the actors. You are an actor in that class. You can't be a wallflower. Uh, Deborah Headwall was the head of that uh, uh, MFA acting program. And uh, I'm, it wasn't even an ask. It was a demand that you just assume that you're, you're working with those actors. Um, so you're just you're learning by doing, right? That. You're learning by application, um, and uh, you know everything was driven through sort of a Meisner lens in uh, uh, you know the 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 acting coursework. And again, at the end of the day, I think once you go through a program like that or any other sort of approach to um, to the craft, you you realize you're sort of you're creating your own toolbox, regardless, because um, at the end of the day, there's a, there's a similarity in all of these approaches, however you sort of label it or manifest it. But that, that idea of uh, behaving truthfully in imaginary circumstances and how are you dropping into those given circumstances? How are they informing you? Uh, what is the overarching thing that I'm pursuing? And in that, in that pursuit, what am I doing to affect the other person? And conversely, how am I being affected by that person? And if you're doing that and you're listening and responding truthfully, it's a beautiful that's thing. Like the, uh, but that's, that's it, it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it sounds so simple, simple and maybe, you know, uh, 
uh, ideological, but in application, it can be harder to manifest. And so, yeah, simple, uh, not easy. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so that that's really sort of the bedrock of of what we were attempting to do. And then in, in addition to that, uh, you're taking coursework with um, Amy Saltz, who was the head of the directing program, really diving into uh, uh, play analysis and then how that translates into um, the framework and the preparation that you're bringing to a rehearsal room then also how that work can be translated to designers. And so how do you start having those conversations and and building a skill set to converse with uh, a designer in an aesthetic way? How do you have a conversation with a playwright uh, in relation to their work? Um, so you're really, you're really working on building a skill set for communication with a variety of parties and, and investors and artists that are helping to create a similar thing. Now, I imagine most of a lot of what they're teaching and how is by, is by doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there any books that you also were required to read that you found helpful? Oh, totally. Would um, recommend I would totally recommend, um, uh, a sense of direction by Bill Ball. Okay. I'll was, link to all these in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. And he was the, uh, the founder of, uh, uh, ACT out in San Francisco. Um, and it's a, it's a, Wildly accessible book feels very conversational, um, uh, not tutorial by any means. It really feels like it's coming from somebody's personal perspective and their point of view and and, and their work. Um, uh, backwards and forwards. Uh, crap, I can't remember the uh, the author's name. That's a great one. It might come to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But certainly find it and link to that because I highly recommend that yeah, as well. Um, and I, I'm sure there were others, but those seem to be staples um, that were that I still continue to go back to. Uh, Misdirecting the Play by Terry McCabe. Okay. Misdirecting the Play by Terry McCabe um, is another great one. So maybe that, you know, that might be a little bit of a triumvirate. And I, I don't know if I, I, I referenced them all in sort of trio, but I do find myself going back to many of those resources that I was introduced to in grad school um, just for my own edification and sort of reminding myself of, of uh, being accountable to myself particularly if you don't have someone who's saying, oh, Justin, you're doing the thing again, right? Um, and I do, to a certain degree, with working through, with different producers, other uh, invested parties that in that regard. But, um, so what ended up happening through the course of that first year, uh, I, I was becoming super aware of the financial price tag of, of this choice. I didn't go to a program that was covering all of my expenses. I, like I said, I had taken out a fairly significant amount of money to go up to the Northeast with this earnest ambition of like, I have to have access to to people's work and they have to see mine. I don't want to be in like the cornfields of Iowa, nothing against Iowa. It's beautiful. Um, as a almost 37 year old now, looking back on that, I would, I would totally advise, in the opposite direction, um, or or to say, look, if like if that's if that's really what you feel your your dream or the the thing is, by all means pursue it. Just know, just consider the cost. Even just know that um, it's not going to sort of magically eradicate itself. <laughs> um, and uh, don't don't let don't let the 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 desire outweigh the reality that's just, that's going to be tied and uh, associated with that. I, I wanted. <laughs> Get specific. So is this is this mainly financial? Yes, absolutely, totally. Because I I was loving the rigor of the work. It it literally reshaped the way that I I. But that's that's why it's so hard now to to go back and try to rearticulate how I was approaching work as a high school teacher because I don't remember anymore. Right. Because I literally feel like I was rewired, yeah, but in the best way possible. Right. So it's like Ugh, I don't I don't know what I did before. Um, 
uh, I, I feel like I should have held on to some of those notes that I took in, in high school to go back and say, what was I telling students? I don't even know if I, I have any more of those. Um, but yeah, so it was becoming increasingly clear that the, this, the cost was just, just going to keep increasing. Um, and they're, because nothing seemed to be assuaging this economic downturn, uh, I had to make some tough decisions about what to do. <clears throat> and so when I sat down and calculated these numbers, um, if things didn't change, if uh, any, any degree of, of support or scholarship money was eroding or less than what you originally promised, um, d- you know, didn't come back, I, I probably would have walked out with close to $90,000 in debt. Well, that's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Um, and, you know, and again, uh, it was a choice that I made to go. So I, I, I can't put that on anyone else. Um, but it is, a, you know, a curiosity now having some separation and some distance from that moment and thinking, I just wish there was a way where those kinds of educational experiences didn't create such a barrier of entry uh, for, for individuals on, on many fronts, but particularly financially. Um, because, you know, truth be told, walking out of that with that kind of price tag, you'd have to book a television show or some type of super lucrative gig to even start eroding that amount of money that you have to pay back. Right. Um, Amy Salt said when she had finished grad school, she, she was uh, a director on, uh, I can't remember, oh gosh, was it As the World Turns or All My Children for several seasons? I can't remember which one, but that's what she did. And it, she, she, there were things that she enjoyed about it, but it, you know, it's a soap opera. It's, it, there's a formula to what you do, but that was the way that she was able to um, you know, pay back a lot of that money. Um, but those those opportunities weren't just knocking at your door. No, there was no one saying, "Okay, I'm just going to wait till you leave uh, you school, and me. here's your, you know, <laughs> yeah. here's your show on ABC that's going to." Anyways, no, any no nobody's out there handing no. any theater jobs away no. or television jobs. Away. Well, have, yeah, absolutely, them. absolutely. And what made it even more difficult, and this is where I think I maybe gained my uh, my greatest uh, lesson, and maybe what has become one of my my greatest assets is learning how to become your own manager, learning how to become your own uh, purveyor of what it is that you do, how well you do it and why someone should hire you. Mm. Because what I experienced and was, and it was a wonderful thing is, as I mentioned before, all of the professors are working professionals in their own right. But there were times when peace out, I'm gone for two months. I'm in Portland directing a show and you're going to have a long-term sub and you're thinking, gosh, but like part of the reason I came here was because you're the one teaching the class. How do you? And so even within that year, I began to not, uh, it, it, it would have been easy to resent that, but it, I quickly learned to move to this degree of understanding of, oh no, actually I need them to do that. I need them to go and do those things because they bring back just this immediate pulse on what it is that they're trying to teach me. So for me to deny them of that opportunity is really, really selfish. And I can, in fact, having someone else is just going to provide another opportunity to learn something new and get their feedback. And so you're sort of constantly, you know, hopefully iron is sharpening iron, right? Um, so, but I, the, but that's what I learned from that is that they didn't necessarily have the time to say, okay, Justin, let's sit down. Let's look at all these options. Let's consider all of these contacts uh, because they were doing that on their own. 
Um, and so not that they would shirk uh, or dismiss you from having a conversation of maybe what's the next step? Could I contact someone? Could I send them an email, send them, you know, call them or whatever and say, hey, there's a student's work I would really like you to see. They would totally go to bat for you on that. <clears throat> but, <coughs> but it was very clear that um, they, uh, they were living sort of the, the, the fullest life that they could as an artist. And what that meant was having both those professional engagements and academic engagements. And so I feel like uh, that imprinted itself on me to, to really find my own agency in that regard. So when I made the decision to leave Rutgers, and I did after that first year, uh, after a lot of, I think, inner turmoil of should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, and I was, I was just looking at it through this lens of, gosh, Justin, you know, if you do this, you're, you're just going to be a failure. You've given up on something. You failed. If you fail, if you quit grad school. Correct. Yeah. Do you want some water? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> let's, hold, let's hold for a second. So did you know when you decided to leave where you were going to go? I, uh, I didn't know initially, but quickly landed back on Georgia because I had family down here. I felt like I had begun a series of professional engagements down here, particularly through Georgia Shakespeare when they were in operation uh, because I had assistant directed a couple of shows for two summers before I went to grad school. And so I felt like I had made some inroads with those creatives, but knew full well that I hadn't really investigated the rest of the city that much because of what I was doing at Woodland and the amount of time that that was taking. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, maybe this is the, the softer place to land um, because of one, having maybe some degree of, of, of familiarity, having a little bit of uh, familial structure down here, having some professional uh, you know, tentacles out that might have some uh, payoff. And uh, I was offered a full-time position at North Point Community Church as their production director of Kid Stuff, uh, which is a program geared towards kindergartners through fifth graders that provides a family experience akin to, I would say, sort of Nickelodeon meets PBS meets an after-school special, but it was a live experience. And I had worked with them as an actor for a couple of seasons before I went to grad school. And so again, coming from a position where I already had some debt to deal with, walking into the potential of a full-time job with benefits, insurance, all that jazz, and a desire to figure out, okay, how can I maybe recon uh, reconnect or intersect with this theater community down here? Uh, uh, this might be the place to come back to. The show is produced by Pinecone Turkey. To learn more about Pinecone Turkey, visit pineconeturkey.com, where you can sign up for the Flock email, a twice-a-month newsletter that delivers a short film, poetry, a short story, and visual art right to your inbox.